Two local hospital systems are among organizations affected by a data breach involving a cloud-based software vendor. And every week, Emily Drake and Todd Connor talk about resilient leadership during the pandemic in their Cranes column called Chicago Comes Back. And every other week, they join me to share their insights. But the truth is something I think we're always kind of working toward as leaders and in business. And we need other people in order to get a handle on it. And, and you see this actually in organizations that we work with where you know they're sort of paralyzed around, I don't know what to say, therefore I'll say nothing. And that can't be the answer. That's all coming up today. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, September 9th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. So every week, Emily Drake and Todd Connor talk about resilient leadership during the pandemic in their Crane's column called Chicago Comes Back. And every other week, they join me to share their insights. Welcome back, guys. Good to see you both. Thanks, Amy. Great to be with you. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you. I I appreciate these live streams. This is basically my social life. This is what I do now. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it's come to, huh? I want to talk about two columns. I want to talk about the one you have this week and then the one you have coming up. You can handle the truth. And and that really has a lot to do with, you know, you, you might not have a lot of clarity about where your business is going right now, but you can still take the moment to build trust and earn trust in really creative ways. So talk to me about this one. I think there's a lot here and it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, Yeah. it it was a deep one to write. I think our process, Todd and I, as we've we've pulled back the curtain a little bit on how we do these things. I mean, we're both sort of wrapped up in the question that we're posing to people and then the subsequent answers. So yeah, this question of the truth and like, what is the truth versus kind of uh, the stories that we tell ourselves, wanting as leaders and as businesses and as individuals to get as close to the truth as we can and honoring the fact that we come with like all these judgments and all of this experience that gets us wrapped up in story versus the truth. And, And Todd and I use each other a lot to kind of get to the fact of the matter which you could say is sometimes in relationships like not that important. You know, the facts don't matter as much as the feelings or as much as the relationship. But the truth is something I think we're always kind of working toward as leaders and in business. And we need other people in order to get a handle on it, in my experience. So, um, yeah, the column was, was really interesting to write because I think while we're looking for certainty and truth right now, it can be really hard to find. And one of the antidotes to that is, of course, involving other people in the conversation to kind of come to it together. Yeah. And I I think it pokes on um, this idea of this question of like, what is a leader and what is a leader in this moment? And I think, you know, an old model says like a leader is the person that has the answers and perhaps an alternative model, uh, particularly in this moment, is, is a leader is a person who holds the conversation, like who narrates 
the moment for us. So rather than looking to the leader to say, we expect you to have the answers, the leader is the person that we look to to say, help narrate this moment that we're in, help, help ground us in the uncertainty, right? And so I think you see leaders that hesitate to say, well, I don't want to send an all employee email because I don't know yet what the plan's going to be, right? So, and, and you see this actually in organizations that we work with where, you know, they're sort of paralyzed around, I don't know what to say, therefore I'll say nothing. And that can't be the answer. Then the question becomes, well, what are we supposed to do for leaders and we don't have the answers? Well, tell them what you know and reground them in the values. You know, hey, we're in this point. Here's all the things that appear to be unknown. Here's how we're going to think about making decisions amidst the unknowns. Here are the values or the thought processes that will guide us as we make these decisions, right? And so some of this can be as simple as, look, you know, we don't know yet how we're going to all come back to work. We don't know whether we're all going to come back to work. We don't know whether we're going to have alternative schedules, but here's what's going to be important in our decision-making. We're going to listen to health experts. We're going to look at what our industry is doing, and we're going to sort of honor the the diversity and the needs of every person on this team. You know, like this is what we'll, this is how we'll approach that conversation. So communications like that, like on the one hand, don't give answers, right? But they actually do give an answer of like, here's how we think about it. And here are the values that we hold and here's how we're going to proceed. So yeah, we want to kind of present this alternative that like people can handle the truth. And part of the truth is like, we don't know. Um, and that's okay. Because the alternative is like, here's a definitive answer is like, that, that doesn't ring true either. Right. So it's okay to lead with ambiguity um, and lead without definitive answers. And, and, but also layer into that, what is definitive, which is like, here's the values that we hold as, a, as an organization or the values I hold as a, as a leader. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what was true or what was a definitive answer in April, wasn't a definitive answer in June and isn't a definitive answer now, right? It doesn't even work. Right. So it's, you're almost in a much, um, not almost, you're definitely in a stronger position to just say, here's what I do know, but here's, there's still a lot that I don't. Now, all that said, you mentioned in particular, like an all employee email or something like that, Todd. Mm. I think there's probably still, I think it's reasonable though, to say that's a pretty big ask. If you're used to that kind of legacy model of operating, that's a big ask. And I think especially all the things that leaders are navigating right now, some of them are very politicized. Some of them are very polarizing. I think there's probably, it's probably fair to assume there's a lot of like fear of making a misstep. How do you navigate that piece of it? What do you think, Emily? <laughs> I have a really strong opinion on this. Um, I'm, and, and you know, the column was really born out of our obsession with cancel culture and not to like shout out another media outlet, but the New York Times did a two-part podcast series all about cancel culture. I thought it was fantastic. And I think it really holds up a lens for us of like, why are we so quick to say it's your fault, you did something wrong, and we're done with you? Because I think in this time, we missteps are the norm. Missteps are like, if anything, they, as entrepreneurs, it's easy for us to say, right? Because you know, we reckon with our own budget and our P&L and we have some, some faculty. But, but if we normalize the fact that we've never done this before, how are we supposed to be good at it? How are we supposed to be good at it? Um, and instead kind of embrace this like growth mindset, classic stuff that our kids are learning in school, by the way, of, you know, you failed, what did you learn? How are we growing? What does it say about you as a person that you failed? Does it mean you're a failure? And this is where we get in from guilt into shame and like a really toxic culture that we 
frankly, cannot afford right now. Like we don't need any more of that. So I feel like this, this sense of you failed, you know, we're not giving you the benefit of the doubt that you had good intention, that you thought about the strategy, you thought about the best case scenario and you went for it. Thank you. You didn't land it. So let's figure it out together because we need each other. We don't need to cancel people. Um, now it's hard, right? Especially if there's something nefarious, if there's something criminal, if there's something sort of outright that, but even then it's possible for us to really, this is the beauty of being human, hold the fact that that person committed something that's awful and that there's, there's you know, sort of honorable things about them. And I could go into a whole other, a whole other diatribe about that, but I think if you fail, welcome to the club. This is where community is really powerful because what's powerful about our relationship, just even the three of us, is I feel like I can be myself, which means I can be free to innovate, free to create, and therefore free to fail, and then supported through those moments, not, not ostracized for them. Otherwise, you don't get the best of me. And we need the best of everybody right now. Well, I think you said something really, really key, and that is to kind of quantify misstep. That can be a lot of things. That's, you know, there's right. a big difference between committing a really heinous, egregious crime that hurts people versus, you know, I probably shouldn't open the office that early. Like those are two mm -hmm. very, very different things. Todd, what, what do you have to say on this, this idea of, of cancel and misstep? Yes, we're in this moment of sort of like cancel culture. And we're still, I think, trying to understand what cancel culture sort of fully expressed is and, and how does that show up? And, and because there's also a conversation around boundaries and how do we respect that? You know, but I think that here's the, here's, the, here's the put and take. You asked the question about old leadership models and like, is this different? It is different. Um, and if the answer before was like, we expect leaders to have good answers. I think the point now is leaders don't have to have the right answers, but we need to know your intentions. And that requires a whole new level of transparency of like, do I really as a leader have to tell you like what's in my heart, why I'm making the decisions that I'm making? And the answer, I think, is kind of like, yes, if you do, we'll have a lot more forgiveness for getting it wrong. But if the answer is, here's the answer, and I'm not going to tell you how I arrived at that answer, we are going to hold you sort of to account if it's the wrong answer. If, the, if, if you know, conversely, if I say, you know, here's the approach that we're going to take and here's why I'm thinking this is the right approach. But it, and if it's the wrong answer at the end of the day, like we can have some allowance for that, which is, but we need to know kind of like actually like what's in the heart. And I think this is sort of where dialogue breaks down. I need to understand like, is your intention in this conversation to sort of stoke anxiety, create fear, create scarcity, or are you, are you in this moment towards new understanding, towards healing, towards community? because the same conversation can be had, but with different intentions. And so I think we're in a moment where like intentions really do matter. And so for the leader that says, look, I'm not used to standing up and saying, you know, here's, here's how I feel about what I'm witnessing in our city or in our company or with our customers, that will feel new. But I think leaders that lean into that willing, you know, willingness to sort of express themselves and, and really sort of open up towards like, not just the decision, like what's in the PowerPoint, but like, what's on my, what's on my heart, what's in my head. We're going to have, I think, a lot of confidence in those folks and a lot of forgiveness for like, quote unquote, the wrong um, outcomes, if and when that, that happens as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, I hope there's a big appetite anyway for, uh, or, or forgiveness for 
not really even missteps, but just kind of an experimental moment. I feel like every, I think I said this to you guys too, a couple of weeks ago, every single interview and every reporter I talk to about their beat, every colleague, it always ends with, we kind of have to wait and see because we just don't know what we don't know yet. And trying to guess has made some, you know, some dangerous narratives emerge, I think sometimes. Um, so it seems though that, that you're re- what you're really kind of honing in on here is that the old way was to be leaderly by having answers and that would boost you and show you as a credible leader. But now the way to say, I don't know, in a credible way is to show your intention and to show what's guiding you and to say here, I don't know the map. I don't know where we're going, but I know these are going to be the things that guide us to get there. Would you say that's a a fair summary? I I think that's a fair summary. And I also think there's, um, you know, and again, this is sort of our editorial view of, I think, the leadership model that we we anchor on. And but it's not to say that it's it's necessarily what works for everyone. Here's here's, I guess, a, a, a nuance I would give. It's partly a question of time horizon. So if if it's just a 24 hour sort of horizon of of a situation, then like bold declarative answers sort of like feel right and feel good. It's sort of like a balm that sort of soothes us if the question is like sustainability like the long term like we need leaders that tell us the truth you know and like it's it's no different than being in like a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship it's like you know a dozen roses is like awesome for like feeling great tonight but like for the sustainability of the thing for the long term of the thing i need to know that like you tell me the truth you know and that that is sort of a different experience maybe not as thrilling in the moment, but ultimately more constructive for like the long-term viability of this relationship, right? And so whether that's what we're needing from our political leaders, whether that's what we're needing from the organizations from which we work, um, with which we work, whether it's what we need from our colleagues, um, you know, I, I, I think we're in a moment of realizing like quick fixes um, sometimes work, um, but ultimately like what's the long-term kind of relationship that we're, that we're committing to. And I think that's where this question of like transparency of intention, um, I think gets elevated as, as a virtue, you know, but we, we, the consumers, if you will, the people that are being led also have to make a decision about what matters to us. Um, and I think this is where this question of cancel culture comes in. You know, if, do we allow our leaders to tell us things like, I'm not sure, um, do we, as the followers, have the room for that? And I think that's a question that you know we have to sort of answer ourselves. Like, is there room for growth for our leaders as well? Because if there's not, if we don't give them the room, then then why would they sort of, right? Why would they allow for nuance, right? So we have an obligation in this relationship as well. And I like comparing that to the long and short term um, gestures within a relationship. I think that's a very clear way to understand that. Emily, other nuances that you would add? I think the only thing I would say is that if if someone's listening to this or watching this and being like, but making decisions is active. What you're saying, setting an intention, listening, that feels, it feels passive. Like, how do I do that? Make no mistake. Like listening is an action and asking questions is an action and both serve to sort of, you know, it, there's this question of intention, right? Serve to move us forward. If you're moving from a place of intention, it's just a more, it's a purposeful, slower way to do it. But that doesn't mean that it's not active. So what we're asking, I think, of each other is like assume good intent, 
And be of service. I mean, as much as questions are invitations, statements are not, right? So what we're really talking about here is like bringing other people in, inviting them in so we can all sort of show up versus like, this is how it's going to be. And that's just a, that's a sustainable way to lead for sure. You know, and something else I would add to what Emily shared, Amy, is this idea that like what, you know, the question is, because I, I think for leaders, it's not that they want to sort of not be transparent or not share intentions, but the but the notion can be, well, won't it give people anxiety to sort of tell them bad news? Mm. Like, aren't we better just to sort of give simple and clear answers and frankly, optimistic answers? And I think that's sort of the root cause of this conversation is like, actually, no, you know, like your employees, and this is why we say, you know, you can handle the truth. Like what gives, I think, employees anxiety is a sense that leaders aren't connected to the reality of the situation, that they um, that they don't have sort of a game plan. Um, I actually think one of the most empowered, or that they don't trust that the employees are sophisticated enough to sort of deal in the reality of the situation, right? Which is actually a vote of, uh, of, of lack of confidence in the colleagues that you lead. So I think leaders that stand up and say, look, here's the PNL, I'm seeing this, it's gonna get bad, you know, but ultimately like, here's the full picture as I see it. Um, I think that's an act of employee empowerment. Um, I think it's an act of employee engagement. I don't think it's, uh, maybe it's anxiety inducing in the near term, but it's ultimately empowering in the long term, right? So this gets back to this question of the time horizon. Um, it gives people in a position of authority to say like, look, I can impact this. Uh, and frankly, I have confidence in this leader because they're not sort of making rash decisions. They're they're grounded in some fact basis, you know, for their decision making. And maybe if they can just make me aware of that fact basis, I can sort of co-create a solution with them. So so yeah, this idea of standing up and saying, hey, there's really bad news. I don't think that that's anxiety inducing. I think the opposite is true. It's like, hey, it's all going to be fine when the people are like, but I know because I work in sales, customer orders have fallen. I know because I work in accounts receivable that like we're not getting as much mail. I know because I talk to our customers that they're not as engaged, you know. Um, so yeah, let's just tell people the truth and then invite their perspective on how we can kind of move through together. So shifting gears a bit to the column that you have coming out tomorrow morning, I thought, I think this is really an interesting topic and that is everyone should have an LLC. And it's kind of this idea of thinking of yourself as sort of this entity of one, this corporation of one, kind of a free agent. Tell me more about where you arrived when you started unpacking this idea. It's interesting. I actually heard this originally from a gentleman who spoke at Crane's Leadership Academy. Um, and he invited everyone in the room. He said, how many of you have an LLC? And everyone in the room is employed and, and supported and being there by their employer, right? So there's a really interesting thing that happens. People are like, like it's not okay uh, to have one. It signals something. And we had a whole rich conversation about what it's, it's sort of like the other side of it, which is this idea that you know, you are the person you're going to be working with the rest of your life, right? So like, where is the faculty, the locus of control, the, the, the vision for the career and the work that you'll do in your life, not just the job that you have. And an LLC, you know, it costs, I think, $250 with the state to sort of file something and get it, get it on register. And the people in the room shared, like, once I did that, even if I didn't do anything with it, it, something shifted for me and it people were happy in their jobs. It wasn't even an exit strategy. 
it was just an idea that maybe they had a one two sheet kind of applied to and they were like i'm just gonna make it real is that is that okay and so it was really interesting to watch people who have just been promoted from like vp to svp create an llc as a way to sort of signify like i have a stake in the ground for an idea that i had for a business that i could do that i might not do but i've begun the process and i think just beginning the process like having there's two things right having an actual llc and then thinking of yourself as an llc those are sort of two ways to go with it but the actual creation of it and filing it with the state signified something really powerful for people and that was my experience too in my own business so um that was that was the original idea and then i think todd can add more about how it sort of manifested into what the column's about um but i think it's empowering yeah yeah, I mean, the the um, the context here is we're amidst and this isn't new to people. People know this from their own, you know, what we're seeing in the world. But um, the generational attitudes um, around job and mobility are just really different today than they were, you know, a generation ago. And so this idea, you know, historically, we might have said the goal is to sort of get to a company and do a good job and sort of you get noticed like your job is just to do the work heads down and then hr manages your kind of career progression um you'll get noticed for doing a good job and sort of promote from there uh, from there forward and just the work environment today is just really different you know millennials um don't expect to be at their jobs longer than a couple of years um i mean the average uh, i think some of the data from the gallup organization was that you know millennials are going to have between on average 15 to 19 jobs over the course of a working career so if if the career if you don't plan to be at one company for the duration of your career the question becomes who's responsible for your career progression and the answer is like you and so thinking of ourselves with this mindset of, you know, um, as entrepreneurs, which is of course something I have a huge passion for and helping people start businesses and be entrepreneurs and doing it while you have your day job, which is why I wrote a book just on this topic, I think really does adopt this mindset of empowerment for ourselves and that we have to sort of be the shepherds of our own careers um, and that we really derive value from creating things of value, putting them out there, making it publicly known, and then you know making ourselves sort of available to be noticed and picked for whatever is needed next and i think you know you can call this the gig economy you can call this sort of the solopreneur or freelance economy but this really is so much of where it's it's headed and i think even if you don't ever plan to leave your company the argument is still you can add a lot more value for your current employer by just sort of living with this philosophy of um it's sort of the artisan way you know which is like i'm out there to sort of add value um, and do it in ways that are really clear um, and that can be recognized and rewarded accordingly. And, you know, with, with the pandemic and with layoffs and, and with sort of the turmoil that's happening, it's, you know, it's an, it's an uncertain time. It's a scary time. I have real empathy for people that are finding themselves sort of upended in moments in their lives when they didn't expect it. Um, and people that were frankly in what they deemed to be safe, safe careers, which were with kind of corporate employers, you know, 15 years those are some of the folks that are the most exposed in this moment because that skill set of sort of adapting, you know, uh, in a in more of a gig economy mindset is really foreign. And so, uh, so it's sort of a call to action, I think, for us to think of, you know, how do I act as though I am sort of in charge of my own brand, my own assets, my creative potential, um, get the LLC, or at least act like you've like like you have it, because that is sort of the thing that I think in this moment in particular is is our insurance policy. Uh, for the challenges ahead.
especially in this moment that we're in, I think what is happening to the economy, what is happening to jobs, it seems like it has highlighted something that's possibly been brewing for a little while about Mm -hmm. kind of a changing feeling around what stability is, maybe a changing definition Mm -hmm. of stability, right? You know, Todd, you said the, the idea of getting one job and staying there a long time and retiring from the company and getting the gold watch, like that's not really a thing anymore. There's some different values in play. And we often talk about like going to work for a company as being the most stable choice, but here the bottom can be pulled out from under you. We were seeing that playing out in a very big way. So Mm -hmm. this almost is this idea is of a free agency, uh, agency ship, I guess, is is sort of repositioning the idea of what's more stable. Are you, in yeah. fact, a more stable landing place than a company? Which I think is kind of an interesting idea to explore. It's a really interesting idea, and I'm, I would love to. I know that people can comment if they'd like. I'd love to hear other the listeners' perspectives on this question of what is stability in this in, in this moment. Um, and for our careers, right? And so this idea of, and Emily talks a lot about self-certainty, you know, this idea of anything that's external to the extent that our, you know, how we wake up in the morning, how we move through our days, how our, whatever hits our bank account, to the extent that that is all externally defined, we have less control to the extent that that is internally defined, we have more control, right? And so it's really just a conversation about locus of control. And that's true for our emotional well-being. That's true for our physical well-being. That's also true for our financial and professional well-being. Um, and so, yeah, how do we sort of uh, sort of take ownership um, is the question. And to the extent that we have more ownership, um, autonomy, we in turn can create more stability. Uh, and that's different from saying, how do I maximize my wealth? That's not, that's different. That's not, that's not what this conversation is. It is about how do we exercise sort of uh, authority over, um, you know, kind of what's happening in our own immediate environment. And, and to the extent that we have autonomy and therefore authority, we can create stability, right? And so um, being indispensable, you know, I would say it this way, being indispensable for situations is far more important than being just good. You know, so if the, if the old thinking is like, I want to be a straight A student, the, the new thinking is I need to get an A plus in something very specific and, and it's okay to get some D's in somewhere else on the report card, but I've really got to be indispensable uh, for something. And to the extent that we can be indispensable, um, you know, that's part of how we create stability for ourselves. And um, it's a way of thinking that entrepreneurs already understand. It's a way of thinking that I think artists and athletes already understand. Um, it's not important that you're a great basketball player. It's it's important that like you're the best point guard, um, you know, like that that's sort of where we need you. So, but yeah, I think it's a call to action for business people, you know, people that haven't historically thought of themselves as, you know, athletes in order to, to begin to maybe inculcate a little bit of that mindset, which, um, you know, in the best situations can, can create some stability, not perfectly because um, there's a lot of external variables that are happening for us, but, but hopefully closer. Mm-hmm. Self-authority and internal versus external locus of control is, oh boy, how much time do we have? I feel like there's so much to, that I would love to talk with you guys about. But uh, Emily, I would I would turn that topic to you now. I was thinking that this is another great relationship analogy. So it's like, in order to come into partnership relationship, right? Uh, to you have to not just be like, what do I want, but like, what do I bring? And what's, if we think about our careers, like what's my career capital? What have I accrued? And that becomes agnostic of any format. 
your context, like everything you've done, you could apply that in a myriad of ways. And that's where you need community um, to sort of help you figure out like which paths to choose. But I would love for everyone to think about themselves as sovereign. You know, I have value, I am an institution and I have capital and I have a way of telling you what that is. And then you can buy it or not, you can get in on it or not. Um, and then I, that's what I bring to this. And I'm not looking for you to fill something for me. I'm instead looking to be more powerful as a partner with you. Um, and that feels really good. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm listening. Yes, you bring value. Um, but our responsibility is to codify that. Like, it's not, and it's not going to happen just popping off on a resume. Like, you really have to tell your story, which is why opportunities like this are so cool. And I'm seeing so much more like Instagram Live and podcasts and articles and like, People are starting to flex. And I think that's really cool because it allows us to see you for your career capital, not just for your function, because you bring so much to the table. So standing in that and really knowing what it is, I think, is, is the most important thing about the LLC concept. Well, it's kind of like a, a bigger view of the idea of going to a negotiation table. You know, if you go in, you're just like, oh, gosh, I hope I get the job. I'll say yes, no matter what. You you may not get the deal you want. Is in, But instead, if you go, here's what I need to say yes and feel good about saying yes, then you're going to come in with a whole different feeling. But you mentioned something I thought was really intriguing, Emily. I want to go back to this of how the like a switch kind of got flipped when that LLC got fire, filed or when you at least decided that you would pursue that. What is that psychological piece of that that kind of buttressed the the person there? Yeah, it's official. I think that it's it's gone beyond sort of the the thinking patterns in our brain. There's a little bit of money put toward it and you can start talking about it. So people, there's something that signifies, right? You've got like a tax ID, it's, it's, got, it's on a piece of paper, um, you, you've made a beginning. And that's all we ever wanna do is get started. Now, day two is a lot harder than day one, always. So it's like, well, now what do I do? But, but trust and believe there's, there's been a process you've been on until you did that, right? So the pre-incubation and then you actually file it, it just represents a really, I think, public step um, and one that you can celebrate. I'm big on celebrating like each step of the way too. So that's, I think, what clicks over. It's, it's like, wow, an LLC, that's like official, you know? Um, and it is, and it's really cool. Todd, I feel like you have a lot to say about that day two piece. <laughs> I feel like that's kind yeah. of- yeah, the day two piece. Well, what I love about day one is like we make some certain things so big and so intimidating. And it's like actually starting a business is just 20 minutes at the county building. You know, I think it's 125, you know, West Washington. It's 17th floor. You, and they're pleasant, you know, and it's like, you know, Secretary <laughs> White and you get in. It's like, boom, here you go. And you're like, oh, wow, I, I did it. Right. And that's day one. Yeah. I mean, day two is really what I would say to people is this is, um, you know, doing is the new resume. So resumes are sort of this retrospective historical record of like, here's what I was good at some other time. But doing is sort of this present day demonstration of like, here's what I'm good at today. And how do I know? Because I just did it, you know? So in this sort of environment where employers are, are thinking, and I like Lucretia's comment about career capital, um, you know, this, this idea that, um, you know, we're moving through the world as our own sort of sovereign sort of set of assets. Like we have these gifts, we have these talents and we can, or, you know, hand people a piece of paper that says, look, here's what I did before, or we can sort of just show up and, and do the thing that is of value. And when, and 
you know, think of an employer when they're looking and saying, well, here's four people that have been smart in other contexts, you know, fancy degrees. Here's what I did before. But here's a candidate who like just got done doing the thing. And we saw it because they posted it about it on LinkedIn or we saw it because, you know, they actually, you know, they, they organized the street cleanup on our block. And now we're needing someone that has that initiative to organize new solutions in this context. You know, there's just no comparison all of a sudden. You know, here's people that have done things in the past, but here's someone that is just literally, we're watching them do it before our very eyes. Um, and that doing um, capacity, that that sense of we see you doing the thing, adding the value, we know that it works because you did the whole brand refresh and that looks amazing versus I have the following, you know, marketing credentials, I have the following certifications. Okay, that's great, but like, here, but let me show you actually a company that I did a whole brand refresh for and, and how their, you know, their sales are being affected as a result, right? It's just a, it's sort of apples and oranges actually. And um, the good news is if you're really good at stuff, you can leapfrog past some of these expensive degrees and some of these credentials. Um, it's a chance to sort of put yourself at the table um, because you're doing it, you know, you're doing the thing um, that we need you for. And, um, and you are sort of finding ways to live demonstrate that. And, uh, and we need it, you know, I, I think about ultimately entrepreneurship is really for me, it's not about starting businesses and making money per se, it is about unlocking the creative potential that everybody's got the weird ideas in your head and weird and interesting kind of ways of seeing that things could be better or different. Um, that's the good stuff, you know, that's the stuff that we need. And that's the stuff that Emily and I are always, you know, pushing people and encouraging people and inviting people to, you know, bring forward. And it is foreign the first time you go public and say, I've got this idea, but it's a learned behavior like anything else. It's scary. You white knuckle, you do it. And then actually what you find out a lot of time is like, oh, maybe no one's actually paying attention. <laughs> and then you do it again and then they start paying attention and then you do it again. And it's like anything else in life, it's a learned behavior, but, um, yeah, we need it. And we, we especially need it now. Indeed. Well, somehow we are already out of time. I feel like we, we could just go all day, guys. You guys have so much interesting <laughs> stuff to say, and I always enjoy talking with you. Well, thanks so much to both of you, Emily Drake and Todd Connor. Of course, everybody, they write the weekly Cranes column called Chicago Comes Back. Be sure and check that out. Thanks so much to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produced this live stream from the remote control room, and to Wintrust, our sponsor. Awesome. Hi, guys. Okay. Thank you. See you soon. Coming up, United pilot furloughs may be delayed. The pilots union says it's tentatively got a deal to hold off cuts of 25% of pilot jobs that were set to begin on October 1st. We'll talk more about that and other stories right after this. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. I'm Albie Galoon, and I cover commercial real estate for Cranes. I'm Cranes reporter A.D. Quigg. I'm Stephanie Goldberg, and I cover healthcare at Cranes. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
North Shore University Health System says some personal info for about 348,000 patients may have been compromised in a recent data breach. The Evanston-based health system said in a statement it's among organizations affected by a breach involving BlackBaud, a cloud-based software provider that does fundraising database services to 35,000 entities. Northwestern Memorial was also affected, reporting that some personal information for nearly 56,000 donors or patients may have also been exposed. South Carolina based BlackBaud notified the health systems in July that an unauthorized individual gained access to its systems between February and May. And while that did not involve either hospital's internal systems, the person may have accessed information for patients, including names, dates of birth, and some clinical information, though not social security numbers, financial, or payment info. Meanwhile, in a statement, BlackBaud said it has, quote, no reason to believe that any data went beyond the cybercriminal, was or will be misused, or will be disseminated or otherwise made available publicly. So far this year, more than 300 data breaches nationwide have been reported to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which requires notice when protected health information of 500 or more people is exposed. Deutsche Bank, whose global operation is under the microscope of U.S. lawmakers and criminal investigators, has enlisted an old friend of U.S. Attorney General William Barr to help the bank navigate the political waters in Washington. The decision came from Frankfurt, where the bank's supervisory board has retained Robert Kimmett, according to people familiar with the matter. Kimmett is a lawyer and former U.S. ambassador to Germany, whose friendship with Barr dates back to the 1980s. Yet his exact role isn't clear even to many executives within the bank. The view from Frankfurt, according to sources, is that the bank's senior leadership brought him on earlier this year to bolster its presence in Washington, where, in addition to the criminal inquiries, Democratic lawmakers are scrutinizing the bank's relationship with President Trump, one of the bank's highest profile clients. Deutsche Bank was the key lender for more than one of Trump's real estate development projects, including the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. Meanwhile, the view from the U.S. side of the business has been a bit murkier. When Kimmett was hired, many top executives in the U.S. weren't immediately informed of his role, according to other people familiar with the matter. Lawyers representing the bank in U.S. Justice Department investigations have been dealing directly with line prosecutors in several long-running investigations. And they said in at least one of those investigations, the department has relayed almost no information in years. Years of mounting legal problems have stunted Deutsche Bank's shares. After the bank resolved several cases with regulators, its CEO promised to improve internal controls and regulatory compliance operations that earlier failed to pick up suspicious activities. The bank has also said it's cooperating with numerous ongoing investigations. The friendship between Kimmett and Barr goes back to the presidential campaign of the late George Bush in 1988, when they were responsible for vetting potential running mates for the vice president. More recently, Kimmett remarked publicly that Barr had sought his counsel while deciding whether to run the Justice Department under President Trump. Find more detail on this story, as well as on many others, at chicagobusiness.com. The University of Illinois system set an enrollment record for the new academic year, topping 90,000 students for the first time despite the pandemic. The system, that includes the U of I at Urbana-Champaign and the Chicago and Springfield campuses, said that enrollment rose 1.2 percent. Specifically, the U of I at Urbana-Champaign, which is the largest university in the state, said in a separate statement that its enrollment also climbed to a record, rising 2.2 percent to more than 52,000 students, with enrollment benefiting 
learning from demand for online grad student programs, though undergrad and international student enrollments went down. Grad school enrollment increased 4.9% across the entire system, while enrollment of undergrad and professional students both dipped 0.3%, according to the system statement. United Airlines pilots say they've tentatively reached a deal with the carrier to delay planned furloughs that were scheduled to begin on October 1st. A week ago, United said it planned to cut 16,000 jobs after federal COVID relief funds run out on September 30th. And of that group, the airline said it would furlough over 2,800, or about a quarter, of its active pilots. And because the pilots are unionized, like other work groups at United, the carrier has to negotiate staff cuts. The pilots didn't say how long the furloughs will be delayed, and the agreement still must be finalized and voted on by the union leaders and members. United and American both recently announced plans to eliminate tens of thousands of jobs if Congress doesn't extend coronavirus-related relief. In exchange for billions in federal funds earlier this year, airlines agreed not to cut jobs through September 30th, despite declines in U.S. air travel that remain more than 70 percent below normal levels. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guests today, Emily Drake and Todd Connor. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.